there was points where guys, once they the word got around in the criminal community, they would bring in some crazy stuff, right? One time I had a guy walked in, puts a box on the counter, and I, I look at it, I open it up, and it's full of prosthetic limbs. <laughs> prosthetic limbs. You know, and I, so I'm like, I go, buddy, this like, dude, what am I going to do with that? Yeah, that well, that, so that was a conversation. I said, listen, man, this ain't a pawn shop. I said, and, and I said even if it was, I, you know, I pulled out this prosthetic arm. I go, I go who, who the hell am I going to sell this to? And he looked at me and he goes, to a motherfucker with one arm, man. <laughs> of course. Yeah. So that's a good answer. That was a good answer. Yeah. You are listening to Gangland Wire, hosted by former Kansas City Police Intelligence Unit Detective Gary Jenkins. Welcome, all you wiretappers, back here in the studio of Gangland Wire. You might notice I'm not sitting up next to the screen. So uh, this, is, this is a new change. I'm watching that, what the other people do. You know, this getting on YouTube is a new thing for me. Uh, mainly was audio for the last six years. And by the way, I have a uh, in, uh, an anniversary. The sixth year of the Gangland Wire podcast is coming up here in April. Uh, but today I'm, I'm really excited. We have an interesting show. I, I just did one, you know, if you look back in the catalog with Dave True, a local ATF agent, we talked about a sting operation that the ATF did in, in connection with the Kansas City Police Department. And today we have... Lou Beloze. Did I get that right, Beloze? You nailed it. Good. Uh, I, I struggle sometimes with, with names that I'm not familiar with, but thanks, Lou. I really appreciate you coming on the show. Thanks a lot. Hey, man. It's an honor to be here, Gary. Thank you. So uh, Lou's book is Storefront Sting, an ATF agent's life undercover. And, you know, we've had other undercover guys on here, Joe Pistone and uh, Ray Morrow from Cleveland, uh, Mike McGowan from uh, uh, New England. Uh, I can't remember some of the others, but that life is is a tough life. Uh, I, I know it's uh, I never really did it. As you guys know, I always was a guy that would maybe sit in the bar while the undercovers were making a buy and just be back up or or follow the people there and follow them away and follow people around and get, you know, public information and and just gather all the intelligence around it. I, I didn't actually work undercover. That was that was not my thing. I just I wasn't tough enough to fit in there, Lou. And 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 I my hats off to you guys. Now, now I tell you what, yeah, the guys that did it, they were bad dudes. <laughs> <laughs> old Bubba was one of our guys. He was, he was bad. He was the kind of guy that if you wanted something done and you didn't want it to come back on you from a management standpoint, you just give it to him and he'd go get it done. Uh, but Lou, I, I digress. Tell us a little bit about, you know, what'd you do before you were an ATF agent? You know, I, uh, I went through a couple agencies uh, before I, I started out as a special agent with ICE, which is now, or, you know, it was called INS back then, right. Immigration Naturalization Service. And uh, I started out in L.A. Um, back in the 1991 in Los Angeles. And uh, it was just great street work. Uh, we were out in the streets. It was a great time to be law enforcement in Los Angeles back then. And just running around, you know, chasing gangbangers. And back then, you know, over half of the violent criminals in LA were foreign born, um, mostly Central American gangs right. uh, that were just terrorizing the streets. And those gangs were showing the American gangs 
uh, a new level of violence. Um, even the Crips and the Bloods, you know, they weren't accustomed to this level of violence that these guys were bringing in. So it was a great time to be a cop out there. And uh, I landed on a task force, at LAPD, ATF, and INS task force. And I started working with the ATF guys. And I, I saw right then that these were the cowboys. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the guys who were the feds, but they were real cops. And they had the respect, you know, from the LAPD, from the local guys. And, uh, you know, I got I got working with them, partying with them, became friends with them. And, uh, you know, at the time, they just weren't hiring. ATF was a small agency. So yeah. I, you know, I did five or six years out there in L.A. on the streets. And it was great work, great learning. I just I wanted to work undercover. And there wasn't a whole lot of undercover opportunities for a big, you know, Italian-American guy from New York. <laughs> so with not with immigration. So, uh, you know, I went over to the U.S. Marshals in New York for a couple of years and then Puerto Rico. And finally, ATF opened up and I put in and I was able to lateral right over. Mm. And uh, I, I started working undercover literally the first day I was on the job. Before I even went to the ATF Academy, I was I was buying guns and dope uh, off the streets. Interesting. So uh, what was your first office? What, what city were you were you in? Savannah, Georgia. Uh, interesting. So um, you, you did you have to move around to different offices, but you you were undercover from day one. So did you, you know, did they loan you out to other places, other parts of the country when they needed somebody or did you just work in that area? No, I worked all over the country. Yeah. Uh, you know, ATF does it differently. You know, we have we have an undercover program and you can you know, you can be assigned to one office, but work all over the country, bounce around. Um and I, you know, I, I did long-term infiltrations all over the country, back on the West Coast, Chicago. Uh, I did a lot of work here in Georgia because, you know, guns are falling out of the trees here in Georgia. And there was yeah. a lot of work to be done. Uh, but I, I went all over the place and um, just had, I mean, the, it was exactly what I wanted to do. I found, finally found something I was good at, right? After all these years. <laughs> and, uh, I, I mean, I couldn't get enough of it, man. I loved it. I never stopped. You, know? you you sound just like Jay Dobbins. I just interviewed him not too long ago. He said, "Well, that's the only thing I could do well." But he said I could do it well. So that's right. Me and Jay are actually writing uh, my second book. We are oh. writing now a murder for hire book. Yep. Cool. All right. I'll look forward to that. We'll have to get you guys back on when you get that one out. Absolutely. Uh, you know, uh, you you talked about a sting operation. That's the uh, the name of your book, and uh, ATF has kind of a. Uh, history of those stings trying to get illegal guns off the street is probably why they started doing stings because as, as you guys out there listening know we just did one not too long ago with dave true about a sting we did in kansas city and it's i mean it's it's ideal to get illegal guns off the street and find out who's trafficking in illegal guns and, and you can kind of follow a, a thread if you will as you get to know the people that are wanting to sell guns and and you get into that that kind of subculture, if you will, of, of people that sell guns. Some people specialize in that. That's about all they do. Dope is always nearby, of course. Dope is always hand in hand with that. And so, uh, you know, the, the ATF and the DEA end up working together on these task forces a lot. And, and the uh, ATF, they'll come in. I'll tell you guys a little secret. They come in with all the money 
and sometimes work with the local PD who will supply a lot of manpower, a lot of a lot of guys like me to go follow people around and do the research and, and find out, you know, who was who and where they went left after they left the sting, where they went after the sting operation. And but ATF is will ha- have these undercovers like Lou here is they have the program and, and local guys, plus local guys, lots of times, you know, they'll be recognized too easily. And, and Lou comes in from out of town and, and nobody knows him. And he's this big time out of town guy, which is what we did here in Kansas city. Usually they find an informant to, to introduce them into different things. So your first thing, I guess, uh, how, how did that go down? How, how, did you open a storefront like we did here? Yeah, you know, I uh, I was bouncing all over the place doing I was doing gang infiltrations, uh, murder for hires, some biker cases, and uh, I did a mafia infiltration. And you know, I, you were working. Sometimes you would put in a couple years on a case just to arrest a couple people. And uh, it, you know, to me, it wasn't it wasn't as fulfilling. Um, you know, I, I got on and it might sound kind of corny, but I believed in the cause, man. I wanted to take crime guns off the streets. That's why I was here. Um, I bought a ton of dope over my career, mm-hmm. but I didn't take any pleasure in that. Anyone can buy dope. I mean, dope yeah. is everywhere. It's easy and you're not really making a big difference. But when you take a crime gun off the street, you just save lives, right? How many, first of all, how many bodies does that gun already have on it? And how many more would it have taken, you know, if you didn't put it in your evidence room? So, we didn't invent storefronts for sure, um, but we took them to a different level and we specialized them into getting crime guns off the street. And how it happened for me, I was actually on another case and I got a call from an agent in Augusta, Georgia, an ATF agent. And he said, listen, the the Richmond County police, that's a police in Augusta, they have an informant and he's a tattoo artist and they want to do a storefront operation. But what they don't have are the undercovers to be inside of the storefront uh, with the informant. He goes, would you Would you be interested in doing it? And I said, absolutely, because I never said no, right? Um, wasn't even really familiar with what a storefront was. And just to be clear, it was the police department, the Richmond County Police Department that, you know, they did the major work setting this thing up and did a hell of a job. Uh, I came in there as the undercover. And, you know, this informant, he had been in prison he had tattooed these guys in prison. Uh, Augusta is just like a lot of Southeast cities, man, riddled with gangs. It just, you know, you see the the masters and you see all the pageantry and the beauty. You know, the rest of that city is gang infested, man. They had huge problems, home invasions, armed robberies, carjackings. So kind of started out really not knowing exactly what the business was, just that I was supposed to get in with the criminal element and buy, buy crime guns. And it was a wild ride, man. I mean, this guy, the informant was wild. Um, we started getting just rival gangs in there at, at the same time. There was all out fist fights. Um, the cops were after us trying to shut us down because yeah. only a few of them knew who we were. Code enforcement was trying to shut us down. The fire marshals were trying to shut us down. We were getting eviction notices. And, and you have to deal with all that while you're trying to run an undercover operation, um, fistfights all the time. Just we're getting, uh, you know, cause we sold a lot of stuff as long as we, we also had the tattoo shop, but we sold stuff and we were getting all sorts of, uh, you know, shoplifting and, and 
just harassment. Uh, so there's so much more to deal with than just doing undercover deals, right? You have all yeah. these factors going on. And I loved it, man. I, I thought it was phenomenal. So we really got in uh, with these gangs. Um, and it was a good way to infiltrate the gangs because we were kind of doing it from the outside, right? We offered a nice, safe venue for them to come into and do their deals. Um, without, I'm, I wasn't trying to become one of these, you know, these are street gangs. I wasn't trying yeah. to infiltrate them, become one of them. I, we were kind of infiltrating from the outside, which is the best way to do it. Uh, they knew we had a hustle going on. They knew I was a gun trafficker, right? They knew it was a safe place for them to come sell their crime guns because I had moving trucks with furniture in and I showed them how I did it. And I would bring the guns up to New York as soon as I had enough of them. So we, we had a good reason to be there and to be buying the guns. And it was, I'll put it this way, after a year of being there, we had 430 guns, crime guns, mm -hmm. in the evidence vault. We bought 430 crime guns in undercover deals in a 12-month period. Wow. It just, you know, ATF had never seen these kind of results, man. It was off the charts. And due to that, the success of that operation, when word started getting around, these storefronts started, you know, everyone's like, wow, you know, what an efficient investigative tool. What a way to get these guns off the street. And they started popping up all around the country. Um, mostly good ones, a few that weren't so good. And, you know, so some trouble happened after that. But after that, I took these operations when I saw, wow, I just did a year undercover and I got 430 crime guns, as opposed to some of my previous cases where you're spending so much time with these guys living with them and all that for, and you weren't getting those kind of results for sure. So I ended up doing three more and each one got bigger and better. Um, and not only did I do three more, but then ETF was like, Hey, you're the subject matter expert. We're going to send you around the country to help these guys just starting out. So I ended up going around the country, uh, consulting, uh, jumping in, doing the undercover and getting a whole bunch more going. It was just a great run. Well, so uh, as you went to these other cities, did had they been able to get an informant that would help them set up and give them credibility, a local guy like you had your tattoo guy? Because that, to me, that's, that's so hard to, to get in to get that first initial trust. You've got to have somebody that's already known to give you some credibility. You know, some did, some didn't. Uh, the, the ones I did, the next storefront I did, we did not have an informant. And it, you know, starting cold is a lot harder because yeah. your new face is in town and, you know, your, your results, you're not going to start out that first month or two, you know, and, and the supervisors, the bosses, they don't care. They want evidence, right? Yeah. You don't want to hear, they don't want to hear your excuses. <laughs> and, and it's when you start cold, it's going to, you know, the evidence is just going to start trickling in very slowly as opposed to starting with an informant. But uh, guys did it both ways. Um, everyone, I, every storefront that I know of had a lot of success as far as taking crime guns off the street. Um, there were just problems like there are with any long-term police operation and especially any long-term undercover operation. And the problems got blown out of proportion. We had about a, maybe an eight year run, eight or nine year run with these things. Congress got sideways with them. They got shut down and they don't happen anymore.
Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I guess uh, uh, sometimes people uh, uh, they don't like the entrapment aspect in it of it, uh, and some people uh, believe in guns, freedom of guns, so strongly that that they don't think any kind of enforcement ought to be taken in regards to guns. So there's a lot of uh, politics around that kind of an operation, especially around guns here in the last ten or fifteen years. There was not that kind of politics around guns back then. No, and you know. Gary, you notice I say crime guns because the guns I bought right. off the street and I bought over a thousand guns off the street in my career in an undercover capacity. Those were crime guns. Those were not guns from from <laughs> upstanding citizens, you yeah. know, whose Second Amendment right is to, you know, is to have a gun. I mean, I'm an NRA guy. We're all for that. These were crime guns out of the hands of thugs. Those are the guns we were taking off the street. Yeah. Didn't you get caught up with uh, people wanting to sell you all kinds of stuff, though, you know, boosted clothes and drugs and, and stolen cars and things like that? I mean, we here in Kansas City, they bought everything. It was not a focus on guns. They got some guns, but but they ended up buying everything. You know, we our focus was on guns. So did we buy dope? We bought a ton of it. kilos of dope because, you know, as you know, and you said it earlier, where there's. Where there's dope, there's guns. Where there's guns, there's dope. They go together. So it wasn't our focus, but when guys were coming, you know, if a guy was coming in, he had a half a kilo or so, we we bought it, uh, depending on the money we had. We And we were, we had to be a little bit frugal about that because, you know, we only had so much evidence purchase money and we were there for the guns. You know, there was points where guys, once they, the word got around in the criminal community, they would bring in some crazy stuff, right? One time I had a guy walked in, puts a box on the counter and I, I look at, it, I open it up and it's full of prosthetic limbs, <laughs> prosthetic limbs. You know, and I, so I'm like, I go, buddy, oh, I do. what am I going to do with that? Yeah, that well, that, so that was a conversation. I said, listen, man, this ain't a pawn shop. I said, and, and I said even if it was, I, you know, I pulled out this prosthetic arm. I go, I go who, who the hell am I going to sell this to? And he looked at me and he goes, to a motherfucker with one arm, man. <laughs> of course. Yeah. So that's a good answer. That was a good answer. Yeah, but we don't have a lot of them coming in. And uh, I had a guy come in, similar kind of story, and uh, he he comes in, he puts a, a huge box on the counter, and it's full of puppies. And it turns out he was a security guard at the mall, and there was that's back when there were still pet stores at the mall. Yeah, he had stolen a box. He had stolen a box of puppies. And the same Puppies. Thing, you, know, you know how that goes, right? If they can steal it, they will. That's so, for sure. So yeah, but we we discouraged that. You know, we were <laughs> one thing we did get into was the stolen car business. We had guys selling us stolen cars, yeah, uh, which turned out real good for us in our last one because they were actually being shipped to South America. This was a, a the biggest stolen car ring on the eastern seaboard, mm. and we were able to get into it. And we learned that the FBI was actually working uh, this organization. And one of the most fulfilling and greatest uh, uh, successes of my career was that I was able to actually work this crew, get charges on them, and indict them all without the FBI knowing about no. it. Right under, right under their <laughs> nose. You know, oh. we Listen, we never got along with those guys. I don't yeah, know. I know. <laughs> I've seen that. <laughs> but I mean, you know, they, they did. These storefronts would present a lot of opportunities, uh, but we were there for the guns, man. That, that was our goal. Our bosses, they didn't care how much dope we bought. You know, they didn't care. And they wanted to know 
two things, you know, guns, you know, are you getting into the crime guns? Are you getting crime guns off the street? And, and they wanted, they didn't want nickel and dime. They wanted you to get into organizations, right? They wanted RICO cases. They wanted criminal conspiracies. So from a storefront, you have to put in time and work in order to, to achieve those goals. And we did, man. Yeah, boy, that's for sure. It is a lot of work. It's uh, from middle of the morning. Nobody get no no thief ever gets up too early. Yes. But somebody's got to do all the book work and the paperwork and keep track of all this too. I don't know how much uh, as a uh, the guy up at the counter you had to do, but there's a lot of paperwork. You got to identify who these people are. Uh, that's so, a big problem. Well, you know, we found solutions for that too, right? Uh, just like you said, sometimes I'd done, a guy would come in and he might sell me some sawed off shotguns, right? Well, he was dropped off, um, you know, some a young girl driving the car, you know, the registration, you know, it's, it's a rental or, right. or somebody else, right? So we don't know who she is. We don't know who really the car belongs to. He's given us a street name, right? So mm-hmm. that presents a problem. You can't charge him if you don't know who he is. So we started doing things uh, creatively to get some of these guys, um, we would have giveaways. What we found out was that, you know, that counter I was standing at when he came in, we would have a a box right there, you know, with a picture of a big flat screen TV on it and say, Hey man, fill this little slip out, little raffle slip. We're giving this TV away Friday. (laughs) I would tell him when we did the deal, Hey man, make sure you fill one of those out, kind of fold the uh, corner. And I'm the one who picks it. I'll make sure you win the TV. Guess (laughs) what, Gary? Bad guys, you know, they will never give you their name or any kind of number that identifies them. But if they think they're getting some free shit, yeah, that they'll, was smart. they'll put their information there. So they would either put a real name, real phone number, yeah. something we could get off. And if yeah. not, we would lift the prints off the uh, uh, off the sh- sheet of paper. Yeah. And, so, and you got the, the guns they were handling for the prints, but it's not that sometimes that's a crapshoot. Yeah. yeah but, prints off a gun are, are in my experience. Yeah. But yeah, so those kind of giveaways and that kind of thing, you know, we were able to identify these guys. So we had to get real creative with that. You don't, you know, if you got hundreds and hundreds of crime guns in the evidence vault, that's great. You got them off the street. But if you don't have the guys behind it, if you haven't identified them, you can't charge them. You know, you only did half your job. Yeah, they'll just steal more and more. And I'll tell you what, it's my understanding anymore. So many people have guns and they carry them around in their car. These guys are working these parking lots of the entertainment districts just to steal guns. They're getting tons of guns because people, they don't want to take their gun into the bar or into the restaurant or something. So they leave it in the car. And and I have a friend that had one stolen that way. And, and there's just tons of stolen guns, even even more than ever now. Yeah, I don't know the stats, but I would say probably 90% of stolen guns are out of vehicles. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, listen to that, guys. If you're going to carry a gun around, either lock it up in the trunk or stick it in your belt and keep it in on you whenever you get it, leave the car. Don't leave it just underneath the, the front seat where you think you can grab it real handy in a, some kind of a street situation. Just secure that gun. For sure. So uh, that tattoo guy, whatever happened to him? Did, did Was he exposed eventually and have to leave town or you guys put him in witness protection? Uh, no, man. He, he was he was a wild guy, great informant. Uh, Little John was his name. No, we, we moved him around and used him in uh, other cases. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, he kind of became a, a, a de facto ATF agent, a contract agent, really, I guess. He, he, he was one of those guys who, who enjoyed it. He yeah. enjoyed it. 
you know, <laughs> well, there's, there's people out there like that. For sure. You know, that's a good talent to have yeah. to draw that criminal element in, you know? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because, I mean, he's probably been in the penitentiary and, and uh, I, I sat with a guy that's become a friend of mine that's done some time. And, and this guy comes up and, and who is a, a similar kind of a history, but they didn't really know each other that well. And I watched them as they started rapping back and forth. And, you know, it, it conversation quickly slipped into this penitentiary, that penitentiary. You know, boy, they just this other guy just relaxed. He didn't know who I was. And we, we were just doing this this kind of for fun, I think, because I'm not going to do anything with anything anymore. I'm retired. But you could see this other guy just relax as he slipped into that kind of vernacular and those little tidbits about different prisons. That's why when, when you're working undercover, you know, and a lot of guys make that mistake to say that, oh, yeah, I did time. Yeah. You got to be careful with that because yeah. you're talking to someone who's done time. Oh, where'd you do it? And yeah. if you don't know specifics and you, you don't know that lingo, you're, they're going to sniff you out right away. Yeah. Or, or even a particular guard or something. You say you were, you know, Big Sandy and, in, in, you know, A Block or, you know, whatever. I can't think. But they'll say, well, did you know, you know, that cop named so-and-so and and you know you look with this dumbfounded look or you say oh yeah yeah i remember him but there's not really such a person as you know it's uh it's a dangerous path to go down to say, no doubt. To, to try to get some kind of a connection with them lou did you uh, uh i mean did, how long did you keep this up you're retired now aren't you yeah i uh i worked undercover for 18 years wow straight. yeah probably should have taken a few breaks in there but i never did so, yeah, you like the action, don't you? <laughs> well, I, it was addicting to me, and I had yeah. a had a crew. You know, our guys, guys like Jay Dobbins and uh, Chris Bayless, and we, you know these guys who were doing the same thing. And you would, you know, you would hear right because we we had a crew, and you know, you would see each other around at conferences, and you know, we we were very tight. You know, so you would hear, hey man. Uh, so-and-so, he just took down his case, you know, and he got 35 federal defendants and, and bought this much dope and guns. And, and, you know, you'd have that feeling of pride, right? Yeah. Hey, man, this, this guy's on my team. You know, he's one of us. You, you were proud. But also, along with that, you'd have that feeling like, hmm, I could do better than that. <laughs> yeah. Seriously. Right? Yeah, I know. I know. I'm better than that. And so <laughs> it became almost a competition, right? So yeah. I was like, well, you know, I'm going to one-up that. Uh, yeah. And that's how we all thought. And so it became a competition. And I don't know if I would say healthy competition. <laughs> very good for us personally. Right. But man, I th we tore it up. I mean, we, yeah. we locked up a lot of bad guys who are still to this day sitting in federal prison and filled up the evidence vault with guns. Yeah, cool. So you mentioned about uh, some mob activity, uh, the primary focus of this podcast. One last thing. Can you tell us a little bit about what you did with a, a was it a mob uh, crew of, that you infiltrated and, and did some deals with? Yeah, it was uh, it was a bizarre case. Um, it was the the outfit up in Chicago. OK, guys, that was my new friend, Lou Velose. You got to check out his book. Put some pictures of it in here. Storefront Sting and ATF Agents Undercover Live. Now, I'll tell you right now, I work with a lot of guys like uh, Lou, and and he's one of the good ones. He's one of the, a guy you can depend on, and and you'd go to the mat for if you get into a tight situation. Now, in this next episode, you got to listen to this. I mean, you got to listen to this. Uh, 
he infiltrated the, the crew, the, the Chicago outfit crew of the one guy we called the large guy or Big Mike Sarno. As you know, recently, Big Mike Sarno tried to get out with a uh, because he's COVID and he's extremely overweight. So he, you know, he has that that problem. If you if you get COVID and you're real overweight and he probably has diabetes and no telling what other kind of health problems. But he didn't get out. Uh, he's in there, I believe, till 2032. Uh, he was a bad dude. And, you know, of course, Lou, w- when the FBI had a problem with the outfit and, and this was after the family secrets trial and, and actually uh, Sarno took over the crew of Frank Calabrese senior. And he was probably the B team got elevated to the A team. I got a feeling Lou figured out a way. I think another ATF agent came up with this idea and it's a hell of an idea. I, I want to tell you right now, but you're going to have to wait a little bit to, to hear their ruse for him to get accepted in to be somebody who was a thief, a professional thief. Lou had to start participating in mixed martial arts, which he already did. So it all kind of came together. It was like this perfect storm that came together. And he put several uh, Chicago outfit people in jail. They brought him in because Big Mike or the large guy decided he needed to plant a bomb on a uh, competitor, somebody that wasn't doing what he wanted to do in the poker vending machine business. And that brings ATF in when you bring bombs in. See, these guys, you know, when they do murders, they bring in a lot of heat from everybody. You know, if you're going to mess with bombs, you're going to bring in the FBI is already there all the time and the local authorities. But then you bring in the ATF. So it just brings more heat on just like when they start dealing drugs. You know, you get both the DEA and the FBI after you then. So it's a, it's a heck of a story. Be sure and come back and, and listen to this next story. And I appreciate everything you guys have done for me. Don't forget to hit me up on Venmo at Gangland Wire. You can buy me a cup of coffee. And, uh, you know, if you give me a little bit of money, I'll put you on my monthly Zoom call list. I do a live Zoom call with people who have, uh, who have supported the podcast. Thanks, folks.